Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now okay everybody i have something really cool to tell you about if you haven't heard yet about anchor it's the easiest way to make a podcast let me explain here it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will uh, distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one single place. Now, the way that you can do this is you got to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and then you can get started it's really fun we just switched over recently here at all too real too and i'm enjoying it so far so be sure to check it out and uh let us know what you think Okay, everybody, welcome to the latest episode of All Too Real 2. From the All Too Interview um, series segment. Ah, God, I messed that up. That's okay, Matt. It's okay. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word series or segment. Uh, it's, it's all right. Do you want to yeah. do that over or are you good? No, I'm good, actually. Okay, cool. <laughs> My name is Michael Lee Cullen II, by the way. And with me, mm-hmm. via the interwebs, is... <clears throat> is Matthew Chocolate Cake Leftover for My Birthday Pass. Happy birthday. Thank you. Well, it's not two days ago, but... But still. But, uh, yeah. As we, record, as we record last... this. <laughs> yes. My birthday lasts for three days, actually. It's very rare condition. <clears throat> yeah, my birthday actually literally lasts for three old 72 hours, so... Were, were you, like, just, uh, like, part way out and then <clears throat> a little bit each day? No. 
No, not really. Yeah, just a little, just, you know. yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, it took three days uh, <laughs> to fully be born. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your foot was getting stuck. <laughs> Yeah. Like, all right. Well, well, we'll just we'll just come back later. And we'll see. We'll, we'll monitor the situation. <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Haas. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyways, um, today we had a an all two interview with uh, actor Gregory Jabara, Tony Award winning actor Gregory mm-hmm. Jabara. He won a Tony Award for uh, his role of Dad in Billy Elliot the Musical in 2008. So, that's pretty cool. Um, I think it's the first Tony Award winner we've had on here. I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it is. So, Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had... Uh... But yeah, he's been... <clears throat> Been in a lot of stage plays and, uh, among other things, uh, most people know him best as, uh, the NYPD Deputy Commissioner of Public Information Garrett Moore on the CBS drama Blue Bloods, which he has been on since 2010 till present. And I was not reading that off of Wikipedia. I mean, I know it sounded just like I was, but. <laughs> no, you, you wrote that yourself. You wrote, you wrote it in a, uh, like a, scholarly you know, um, uh, way or whatever. Yes. He also, um, one of his other uh, prominent TV roles to date was <laughs> as Dan O'Keefe in the Fox slash WB sitcom Grounded for Life, which ran from 2002 till 2005. Oh, shoot. I think that was, um, was that the dude, uh, the, the show with uh, uh, Donald, uh, Donald, the, Donald, the Loge. The- Donald Loge was in it, was the main guy. Right, was that was that the guy from the movie the they called the, the Tower of Steve? Yes, Don uh, Loge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I remember that show. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, he. Uh, yes, <clears throat> um, I do believe uh, like Gregory's character was like a recurring character as a friend of his on there, um, but he's also been on Broadway in. He played Billy Flynn in in a the revival of Chicago. That's the lead role in that. Um, mm-hmm. he, he was in Damn Yankees. He was in uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. He originated the role of um, Andre Thibault. Thibault? I can't pronounce words. And, um, <laughs> yeah, among among many other uh, stage performances that he's done. And then um, he's guest starred on Friends and... Um, Mm-hmm. Did a million other uh, guest appearances on TV and stuff too. So he's a well-known actor. Graduated the university. <laughs> uh, well, he knew he attended the University of Michigan and graduated from Juilliard School of Drama. So you know that is very cool. And when, yeah. And when he says when he says million, he literally means he's been in a million things. No, I don't. He's he's very like he's always working like constantly like. <laughs> doesn't sleep, doesn't even sleep. Just is constantly working. Yes, <clears throat> he doesn't sleep. He's a robot. Um, we learned that in the middle of the interview, and now you're spoiling it, Matt. No, he's not a robot. He's got too big of a heart to be a robot, though. Yes, he's a robot with a heart. 
Oh wait, no, he's not a robot. Ooh, at all. No, I like that though. <laughs> robot, a heart, a heart bot. Heart bot. I, yeah. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm loopy as all shit right now. So <laughs> me too. So, anyways, um, uh, here we go. And you can actually, uh, really cool thing is, is I was the guinea pig for his uh, brand new uh, little studio setup that he has in his apartment in New York. So, um, first, uh, first go of using his little studio in his apartment was uh, on our podcast, so we got that to say. So, uh, here we go. Here's my interview with uh, Gregory Jabara. So, how are you uh, doing uh, with all the craziness in the world today? Uh, this is two weeks into what I'm calling my sequestered employment in New York City. I'm, I'm an L.A. resident for the last 20 years, but and, you know, of course, ever since I was shooting season 10 of Blue Bloods when the uh, COVID lockdown happened. And then I had about, uh, that was end of January, early February. When did we, sh- no, March 15th, 13th, March 13th is when we shut down, right. But I had finished, I was actually home when that happened in LA. So then they just said, yeah, don't bother coming back. There's no show to come back to. And then I had about uh, some really welcome time with my wife and our youngest son who's now in 11th grade in high school uh and our eldest is away in college and was living off campus so even though the campus locked down and he's getting his commercial pilot's license and the flight line was still open he was able to continue working doing his you know online classes so uh, unlike so many friends of ours who have children in grade school or uh you know had kids that were graduating last year you know big transition time i'm just speaking parental level yeah uh it's uh we we got off we got off pretty easy i mean other than the unknown of whether i'd ever have a job again but um in terms of the hardship of you know it's great when you have a kid that he just our youngest just got a driver's license so you know we we it it we've we've lucked out in that respect and health-wise too yeah you know we were smart um in following all the recommended protocols and uh and you know gratefully none of us have um contracted the virus uh though there have been many many casualties that are that have been related to it uh, with relatives and and close friends but um our our personal family um when people say how i'm doing i i my pet answer is uh or pat answer is is grateful yeah I'm, i'm i'm grateful you know yeah that's always that's always good that nobody in your immediate family's uh suffered at least um so uh you're back to filming blue bloods now we are we are uh we're two weeks in we i started a week ago yesterday Uh, i was supposed to start a week ago yesterday (laughs) uh but then i ended up starting actually on the tuesday prior because the cbs viacom cbs has a and our unions have a wonderfully strict covid protocol for being able to go back to production and uh we had you know so many people traveling back from other coasts and the scheduled the timing and the testing you have to do on a regular basis and if you're not cleared with a a negative test result you can't work i mean it's that simple so um because i tested before leaving la uh, which you have to do if you travel by air uh, within 72 hours of getting on a plane and then you must test uh, immediately when your boots on the ground um, and then you also have to test 
as an actor on the show and any writer who's working on their episode, any director and first ADs and a handful of other key crew, we test three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Oh, wow. Uh, and then, and then that's just the COVID test every day that you work. You're also, your temperature's taken and you fill out a questionnaire and, and it's, 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 it's like working in a, um, infectious disease laboratory the the redundancy of of safety protocol in terms of the ppe that our crew wears uh is and and the fact is i don't see most i don't see most of the crew uh there's a whole flow well like like the actors are uh, are in a specific pod and we travel on our own world and we don't physically uh, see or come in contact with any other crew because they don't they only test like once a week yeah. In addition to their temperatures being taken, so there's, there's, and, and our cameras are now robotic. Um, I know that they were, uh, there was some, you know, uh, information going around about uh, that we were looking at robotic room cleaning, and but it was actually robotic cameras. Oh wow! Were the were the next step? So the three men that would normally be on each of the three cameras in on the set with us at say at the commissioner's office, now it's two cameras. And both those cameras have no people around them. The camera operator, the 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 focus puller, and the uh, dolly grip are all working remotely with joysticks from another space. Oh wow! And it's it's kind of surreal. That it's, is. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. It's really it's very very <laughs> strange, but it's it's working. So yeah. uh, you know, gratefully, we're it's it's a longer day. Yeah. It's definitely a longer day, and we're still finding our stride it's uh you know the the when when the director goes i want to okay let's move to a new, new size and i want to bring these cameras around over this shoulder you know it you have to the guys are watching a, 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 a eye in the sky camera the operators of the of the robots yeah they're looking at a camera that's have an overview of the room they can't just like push and make the thing move because they're gonna run somebody down so there's like a there's like a it's a, a slightly <clears throat> slower process you know every time mm-hmm. we set up a new shot but um slowly you know each day that i've worked uh and there were many more days than anticipated because it's taking longer yeah. uh it, not that we're because it takes eight days to shoot an episode and it's not that we're spending more days on it it's just our days are longer yeah and but we're getting it done. Yeah, no. We're getting it done. It's just really strange. Yeah, and I mean, it's probably good to be back to work at least, too. I mean, regardless, yeah. It is It is uh, profoundly uh, grounding. Uh, but, but it's also, I'm finding a whole other, uh, admittedly, it's a whole other stress level because you sh- I haven't been to New York since uh, end of February. Yeah, early mid February, and it's different. And I'm not staying in my, you know, my big posh hotel that I commute to and from. I now am in an apartment <clears throat> that's a four minute walk from the sound stages, so that I don't have to deal with transportation. You know, it's one less vehicle that our our transportation department has to worry about getting me to and from. I can get myself every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to the testing center on the sound stages. It's uh, and I'm and with my new health regimen, um, it's nice to have a kitchen and I can cook all my own food and <laughs> and and make sure that you know I don't start stress eating and all that hard work goes away you know from the the insanity. But it's a it's a 
different, you know, I'm living in, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, yeah. which I've never done before. <laughs> and the, although I did go into the city today to go to the uh, farmer's market at Union Square and it's a, it's very different. The city is much quieter. There's a lot of uh, institutional uh, restaurants and stores that are shuttered permanently. Yeah, that's too and, bad. And it, it's really strange, really, really strange. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a very different existence. But the bottom line is, hallelujah, <laughs> I have a job. Yeah, it's better than some people, unfortunately. And um, yeah, yeah, like Broadway. Yeah, I was yeah. hearing that they're not going to open until like mid next year or something. Broadway. Yeah. It 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 won't open. I don't know how it can open yeah, before. The end of 2021. The, That's what I'm you know, thinking. those those shows aren't they weren't they weren't constructed to to you know work at 25 percent capacity. They 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 no. need butts in every seats eight times a week. And uh, you know, history has shown that nobody wants to say, "Oh, I'll take a pay cut." I mean, you know, yeah. there are a few stickler unions that go, "No, you still have to pay us full rate." Yeah. You know, I don't care if it's a charity or a benefit. So. There's a there's a there's a lot of uh, there, there's going to be a lot of uh, teamwork that will be required if they want to come back before a vaccine is found, and and then you have to you have to convince tourists that it's safe to come back to New York City, yeah, and how to get back to New York City. That, there's a there are a lot of moving pieces that have to be solved before, and and it and it has it's it has obliterated the city of New York that the absence of Broadway it is. I know that's uh, it's, at the heart, yeah, of, heart of New York. Devastating, yeah. And yeah, I, I know, and I know those theaters too. A lot of them, you know, were built like around the turn of the last century, and they've got like small seats sometimes too, and they're really close to each other. So, that's, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, and and <laughs> inadequate ventilation systems. I mean, yeah, the the yeah the the, the work that would that we they really can't. Unless you're going to, unless the federal government's going to say, "Hey, yeah, you can," we'll help you spend millions of dollars renovating all these facilities so that you can, you know, safely have a few more than twenty-five yeah. percent in the theater. Yeah, it's just, it just, it's not going to happen. It can't. It's, it's not responsible. So, uh, speaking of like Broadway and everything else, uh, how did you get uh, started in uh, acting? Um, uh, I always credit the Catholic Church. Uh, I was an altar boy. I was raised Catholic, went to a public school, but I was an altar boy. And the, um, you know, there were like, how many, three masses on Sunday. There was a five o'clock mass on Saturday. And then what a lot of people don't know is for those who aren't avid churchgoers, there's a 630 mass every weekday. And the, the adults who were the lectors, that would read from the scripture, like the first and second readings and any additional connective material that the priest wasn't saying during a high mass on the weekend. Those that the, the adults were doing that, you know, they were lecterns that were up assisting, but during the week, those adults are too smart to get up to do a six thirty mass. <laughs> the altar boys were the ones who were doing the, the reading. And here I was in third grade standing at a podium reading you know, biblical names that have more syllables than Constantinople and <laughs> uh, re- cutting my teeth on public speaking and going, oh, I'm, I'm, this is something I have a facility for. And uh, I, I can remember at some point going back to, I was in school during the week and someone came up to me and said, hey man, I saw you up there on the altar. 
on Sunday at mass. That was you, right? I was like, yeah. He goes, yeah, it's really cool. And, uh, you know, it's like it kind of fed, it kind of seeded that little ego of mine going, oh, I got noticed. That's, that's kind of, so I, I'm being a little yeah. flip about it, but, but, still, but yeah. the reality is the, exp- the, the idea of, of being in front of people, which is, you know, a huge part of the success of uh, stage acting at, at the very least, uh, I, I do. I attribute to the fact that my folks raised me Catholic, and I, I uh, Father Nikarts had me reading from the scriptures at a very early age. It was, yeah, that, that I, I, and then I also went to a public school system in uh, Wayne Westland, uh, Michigan, that, you know, this is the l- 60s and 70s, and this is when, you know, baby boomers, they were paying, ta- everybody was happy to pay education taxes because their children were getting every possible opportunity and and we did we had a i we had a tv studio we had a radio station we had you know a marching band we had a 60 member men's chorus oh wow you know it was like the arts were were it sports were as well and academia um i have two siblings that were you know valedictorian but i uh yeah, thank goodness for the fine arts and that everything was there because that really was what made, made me happy. It's where I excelled. It, it was validating. And when I was floundering in the in the world of math after geometry, uh, <laughs> I had I had performing arts to lean back on and, and go, hey, you still have some worth, man. You can make people laugh. You're a good entertainer. You have a, you have a great ear, you know. Okay, good, because I can't even spell trigonometry, let alone do it. I think that's the same for a lot of artists. Uh, I was good with geometry and that was about it. So. Right. That was that literally like geometry. And then I, I couldn't even tell you what, like which algebras, whether they came before or after, I don't remember. Yeah. But I remember that geometry was like, I was acing it. I was Jamie Rothermel and I were pitted against each other by uh, Mr. Telma, our math teacher. Cause he just saw that we were highly competitive and we were great. It was like, Oh, this, I love math. But then whatever that next step was, oh, no, yeah. no, math requires a part of my lobe that I think is dead. Yeah. Pretty I, sure. I think I'm the same way. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, so uh, what was like your uh, first like uh, experience on like the actual stage? Uh, as the, you mean, even non-professionally. This yeah, is anyway. a, yeah. It was a traumatic experience. Oh, no. It was first, it was first grade. I mean, other than third grade, you know, as an altar boy, but actually performing, it was first grade and we weren't doing plays in elementary school, but we were, our class was going to sing Frosty the Snowman for the Christmas concert. You know, all the, each class would do some, contribute some musical piece to the Christmas concert. And our class was going to sing Frosty the Snowman. And our teacher had to select one of the students to play Frosty the Snowman. Uh, and what that entailed was... We're going to wrap you up in, in white tissue paper and put on the, you know, the corn cob pipe and the button nose and two eyes made out of coal and the top hat. <laughs> and and all you have to do, you don't even have to sing now. You're absolved from having to know the song. You just have to walk back and forth in your Frosty the Snowman costume while the rest of the class sings. And you just walk back and forth. That's all you have <laughs> to do. And I was selected as Frosty the Snowman. And I had never known such terror. <laughs> uh, 
it was the first time I think I'd ever been singled out for anything in a performance aspect. And, and, and the stakes were so high. I, I, I'm just remembering this, but it's still a, a sense memory that I was terrified. And once the, the number was over and the concert was over and everyone said, Greg, you did such a great job. You were such a perfect frosty the snowman as you would say to any first grade child who just whether they whether they tanked or not you yeah. must you know bolster their um egos and and i came away going oh i didn't die i didn't have a heart attack that was really exciting and exhilarating and i think that's where the the exhilaration bug came in for performing it was like oh this is this is this is a lot of fun it's definitely a good high when you yeah get on stage um and not have a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> Once you survive At five it. years of age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, you went. You ended up uh, going to uh, Michigan and then to Juilliard, right? Did you do theater at Michigan? I, I did. I was. I started with a minor in physics and a major in communications. Uh, the president of the communications department, uh, or yeah, he was the president of that department. I think that was his actual title. He died. Uh, halfway into the first year and um, I realized very quickly in my you know 101 courses for a minor in physics that there were people doing things in their head in class that it would take hours for me of studying every night to do to keep up and although I loved you know blowing things up and all the competitive you know experiments that we did when I was in high school that made me love physics I realized oh um, there are people that are really a lot smarter than me and um, we're not blowing up things nearly as much as I'd like to or building airplanes out of, you know, whatever. And long story short, I realized that I was being cast in all the non-theater department shows that I was auditioning for. I had joined our dorm. Uh, it was Adams House West Quad uh, jazz band, Tony Carlin and his orchestra, Tony Kalin, Tony, Tony Kalin, Tony Kalin and his orchestra. I, I was still able to play trombone. Um, and then I started being a vocalist for that band. I was in the sophomore musical that was, that was directed by Oliver Goldstick, who, if you Google him, you'll go, Oh, he's a very accomplished TV showrunner. Um, uh, Beth Gordon, who now is Beth Holmes, who's one of LA's most prominent, uh, casting directors in LA. She was Charity Hope Valentine. Doug, Doug Douglas Sills was Vittorio Vidal. He's a, a, a wonderfully accomplished Tony-nominated Broadway star. Um, it was a it was wow. just a core of really amazing people. But also uh, the choreographers for that sophomore production, which meant everything was done by sophomore students. We're, yeah. we're talking direction, design, the whole the whole Megillah production. It, it, everything was done by students. Um, the choreographers, the two ladies, uh, uh, Michelle Melkerson and Sue Addison and I, uh, the, well, the two women were the choreographers. They came to me and said, hey, we want to start a dance company here, non-departmental dance company. Will you be our guy? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll you bet. You know, mirrors, very little clothing. Uh, <laughs> yes, this works for me. But <laughs> but so I was a sort of, you know, uh, I, I, I happen, I'm, I'm not a dancer, but I got away with it back then, moved enough, you know, to embarrass myself. We started this uh, dance company called Impact Jazz that I, I'm proud to boast still exists today. Uh, 
as a non-departmental dance company at the University of Michigan. And then also with my a fellow student who I grew was new since junior high, um, Linda Goodrich. Uh, she, we were students at Michigan together. She, along with, it was really uh, Connie Barron, who was a PhD in voice at the School of Music. Connie wanted to put together, um, along with, oh, I'm ashamed that her name isn't coming up. Oh, one of my other voice teachers, uh, her daughter and I are connected on Facebook. I could tell you everything about her except her name. <laughs> it'll come. It'll come back to me. Um, we ended up starting. We actually founded what is now the musical theater program at the University of Michigan oh, wow. uh, uh, under uh, Dean Boylan. And uh, uh, so, and that right when it got underway, and they said, "Yeah, great. We you have a musical theater program, but you're going to have to stay at Michigan another two years to fulfill all the." music courses that are required through the school of music because you've been in the school of literature science and arts as a theater major and i went oh and my professors and directors and teachers mentors at michigan in the theater program said you really should be going to another school that is more that's more of a conservatory that's a bigger challenge because i became a gratefully a big fish in that small pond very fast Mm -hmm. there Uh, we're talking within my first two years my first summer there i was cast in three leads in the summer rep at the power center so it was like a fast track at michigan and but everybody's going yeah 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 yeah, but you really need to go somewhere where you can be taken down a peg uh it'll be good for you so i auditioned and got accepted into the juilliard school which was another long journey. I consider it the Michigan Mafia that got me into that because Sharon Jensen, who was the president of the League of Professional Theater Training Schools at that time, that would have been 1981. Yeah, 1981. Um, she was the, she's like Connie Barron's best friend. It was Connie who said, call Sharon Jensen. I want her to talk to you about the league schools, the conservatories and universities that have intensive uh, you know, theater training programs to see if this might be something you don't, you might want to do. And after speaking with her, I realized if I'm not going to stay and work, you know, stick it out at Michigan, I need to go to New York city. That's the place I, yeah. if I'm going to leave, go to New York city, because if you, you can, tr- you'll be trained as an actor. Your work during your training will be seen by the industry. Um, there's film going on there. Uh, but I was, I considered myself a stage actor because that's what I had known. I ended up leaving Michigan, you know, the musical theater program started. I was, <laughs> I was the founding, I was a founding class member, but I left and then, um, and then got accepted to Juilliard and yeah. did another four years. So what, what it took seven years for me to ultimately get my uh, bachelor of fine arts degree and my parents breathed a huge sigh of relief Yeah, that I finally finished something. How was, uh, how intensive was it at Juilliard? Is it? really intensive there <laughs> they uh, there's a there's a, a pbs special called Li- live from lincoln center juilliard at 80 so if you google it i don't i've actually tried to find it i i, yeah. I haven't found it online anywhere um but uh, i can remember saying in, in an interview there because i was one of the five students chosen to represent the acting program yeah uh, there were students from each discipline and i said what's beautiful about the uh, acting program at Juilliard is, is they, they, um, you come in thinking, you know, who you are and what you're about and what they do, which is really unsettling is they dissect you. They, 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 even 
as you resist and try not to make it happen, they they force you to look at yourself from the outside and and compartmentalize all the things that you are and kind of take it out of an organic, just sort of instinctive thing and go, no, these are these are specific things that you do and here are the things you do that are successful and these are the things that you do that aren't. And and here's we're gonna teach you how to make choices about what, what what tools you use as an actor and the the hard thing is they they you're scrutinizing your physicality they're scrutinizing your voice like my Michigan nasality was the reason that one of the reasons I got accepted there is because when Liz Smith who was our voice teacher primary there when, when I auditioned for her out in San Francisco she said you open your mouth and she goes oh I just had to get I have to fix that horrible sound that's, <laughs> that's what she said that at Michigan they and and uh, one of our other teachers said it was that one of the other things that they also realized is that there was hope for me because when I sang the Michigan nasality was gone I had tremendous wonderful classical placement when I sang but when I spoke so they went okay there's hope we know that he has the ability to do. so there are all these things that got me in there but ultimately after about the first two years when um, all they're telling you is no, that's no, that's not. You know, you're no good. No, that's not good. Nope. And you, 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 you doubt whether you've made the right choice. You doubt whether this is the career path for you. Um, but what they do ultimately is they go. You have to go to that place of 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 self doubt. And and they do protect you, although it's a rough road. It emotionally, yeah. it's a really rough road. But they don't let you kill yourself or become suicidal uh they there's enough of a safety net because this this is the important process uh because when you come out at the other end you understand everything that you are you it's like having therapy and great theater acting training all at the same time it's Hmm. it's it's wonderful so if you survive the program you're uh you really have a great set of tools to be successful they're probably uh gives you a thick skin too for when you come out and you can a little bit you know yeah <laughs> i actually i i don't know that's true of, okay. <laughs> of of the original 23 actors that started in my class mm-hmm. only 11 of us actually completed the four years they do a cut yeah. after the second year they they there there are actors in the class that that simply don't julia goes we don't need to be taking your money you're ready to go you go out and you go make money and be a successful artist because you've got it um and then there are other actors where they go we just don't think in these two years we just don't think this is for you mm-hmm. um but of of the 11 that made it all the way through i think it's fair to say that really only five of us actually went on to make a living oh, wow. and in in the industry and and it wasn't because we were the most five the five of the most talented it was because we were the five who figured out the salesman aspect of being an actor that you have to walk into the room and be winning as a salesman of what the commodity is that you're marketing yeah. and not, not all of these actors who were better actors were uh, uncomfortable in their own skin yeah. and had difficulty with that aspect of the business. And if they weren't lucky enough to have uh, representation that could, uh, and, and many of them couldn't get representation because the, the, the managers and agents that met them are going, 
oh my gosh, I, what I really just want to do is hold you and tell you, tell you it's going to be okay. And, you know, nobody, it's difficult to market that kind of a person. You know, yeah. the, the industry is difficult enough that you really do want people that walk into the room and go, hey, I like me and you're going to like me and I'm really not a, a, a desperate person and I'm really okay and I'm going to be the least squeaky wheel of all the things you're going to have to deal with and you're actually going to want to work with me uh, over the course of, you know, this three-month film or this potentially, you know, 10-year series. So don't worry. I'm a good I'm a good bet. And yeah. that's, I think, more important than, um, especially anymore, than, you know, because uh, the, 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 the big stars that are, in, unless they're just a huge box office draw and they can just get away with anything. Um, yeah. But but the artists that become more of a uh, of a of a liability than they are uh, fun to work with and creating a product that is making somebody money, those people tend to stop getting work. I I have found. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, regardless of anything, it's probably you just need people that you want to work with because you know if 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 somebody's difficult or shy or whatever, it's not going to work out probably. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who the quote came from, but they said, "Oh yes, they worked with all of the great directors once." <laughs> <laughs> and gratefully, that's not my case. I've, I've, I have several: uh, Jack O'Brien, Stephen Daldry, uh, um, uh, Ken Quapis in television. A lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of validate, and then Tom Selleck. Blue Bloods is actually the third TV job that he's given me. Wow. So um, somehow I've managed to keep my stink outside the room <laughs> and they've and, and, you know, snow them all into thinking that I'm I'm uh, fun to work with and, and reliable. So uh, it, it, it really has proven that, uh, yeah, if people that like working with you will actually work with you again. Hello, I'm Tom and I'm Brian, hosts of Be Hero Fights, home of the greatest debates of our time. We tackle the tough topics such as Fortnite vs. Call of Duty, McDonald's vs. Burger King, John Wick vs. Wait, is is that really fair? Nevertheless, join us weekly on Spotify, Apple, Google, and pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. And hear the madness ensue. And as always, fight on. Hi, folks. This is Michael E. Cullen II from the podcast that you're listening to right now, along with manager Matthew Haas. You got promoted? Yes. Damn it. Okay, anyways, um, folks, uh, do you like the show Superstore? I don't know. I asked the folks and nobody's answering well, me. Because they're not here. Oh, but we love damn it. it. Yeah, we love it, though. Okay, folks, if you like it as much as we do. You're really going to like the Super Story podcast, which is a podcast where Matthew and I go uh, episode by episode and give our little opinions and thoughts on it. Uh, sometimes we have guests, sometimes we don't. Um, just depends on how we're feeling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so if you like this podcast and like our little crazy banter, then you should definitely check this out. Or I might get sad. And when I get sad, it gets pretty sad. So I can't deal with him when he's sad. Yeah, no one can really. So um, yeah. So, so check out a uh, Super Story podcast right here where you get this podcast, Super Story podcast. You uh, were in a uh, Billy Elliot. How was that? The musical. 
Speaking of, uh, speaking of, uh, that was Stephen Daldry who directed yeah. Billy Elliot. Um, it, that was an interesting journey because I had just come from, uh, I was living in L.A., um, had just finished doing Dirty Rotten Scoundrels on Broadway, but um, my, we were living in L.A. with two very young children, and um, the and business was drying up in L.A. The, all of the industry was moving out to Canada and to Louisiana and Georgia and Texas, and there was a lot less production happening in Los Angeles. Um, they wooed me. Well, it was like, okay, I'm either going to become a cook at night somewhere or I'll drive a FedEx truck uh, because we're, we're broke and we need to figure out a way to put food on the table. So I threw my hat in the ring for some jobs back in New York for some stage jobs. And um, I, I threw myself at Dirt Rotten Counters I got, but I was wooed by the producers who said, um, you know, this is a leading role and there's great potential that you could get a Tony nomination and it could really help parlay into other work. And those are sort of, from a business standpoint, at this point in my career, Having already worked, you know, my last Broadway job before that was um, starring in Chicago on Broadway and then in uh, uh, Victor Victoria with Julie Andrews and then in, wow. in Damn Yankees with Jerry Lewis and Victor Garber and B.B. Newworth before that. Wow. Uh, I'd had, a, you know, I, I'd, I'd hit the wall mm-hmm. in New York because all I was doing was auditioning for leading roles that were going to people that had bigger TV and film recognition than I had because I had none. So that's why we moved to LA because it was like, okay, it's time for me to get some TV and film work so I can come back and star on Broadway. And that's literally what happened. I got the gig on in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels right after I did this guest starring role on Friends that got yeah. a lot of exposure because it was like the final season and 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 it really did. They all the people say, yeah, man, we saw you on Friends. It was like that, it's a powerful tool. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, for, for, for stage actors, you know, um, and, and for producers who are going, we need a face, we need a name that's recognizable, that we can market to get people into the theater. Mm-hmm. So I, I take this job. I'm the, the boys were really young then. So we got to all be in New York uh, at that time. Our youngest was six months. Zachary hadn't started school yet. So it was easy for us all to be there. Um, but the, the it was a glorious, wonderfully gratifying phenomenal act a job uh we had yeah. a great time but then it was time to go back to la because our our youngest was uh really starting grade school and he'd gotten into the school that we wanted him to get into back home and we couldn't afford to live in new york with to you know we couldn't afford it so yeah. it was time to go back to la and then and then we were broke again you know that was 2007 uh, it wasn't even a year and I had to put my hat in the ring. But the reason I, the, oh, the, there were John Lithgow, Norbert Leo Butts, Sherry Renee Scott, um, Joanna Gleason and I, and then but right below Bill right next after me was Sarah Gettlefinger. Of the five top, of us top five build, I was the only person who didn't get nominated for a Tony Award. And I don't begrudge yeah. that at all because... The truth is, uh, the the other actors that were nominated in the category that I'd be eligible were like they were they were amazing and did and required 
discipline and physical stamina that was not required of me in the role that I did. The, 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 I couldn't even tell you who the nominees were, but, but I, I went, no, I, I don't feel like I was being slighted because those people had to do a lot more yeah. than I did in that category. So, but, but you, you take a job and you go, oh, there's a potential for, but what you can't control is in the creative process, songs get added, they get cut, you, things come and go, and, and it can affect the weight and size of the role that you play. So when Billy Elliot and 9 to 5, and what was the other show that I was considering going into that same season when we were broke again in L.A.? Billy Elliot, I researched. Billy Elliot, the role of the father that I was auditioning for, well, that I would ultimately audition for, uh, got nominated for the the um, Helpman Awards, I think they're called, in Australia. Oh, okay. The role of the father got nominated for the Olivier Award on the West mm. End in London. So <laughs> I knew that the role was hefty enough that it could be a great opportunity for me to possibly get that recognition that could help parlay more, at least remunerative work in theater, if not TV and film. So when my agents called from New York and said, hey, would you be interested in auditioning for Billy Elliot? I said, I did the research and I came back and I said, you bet. And what normally happens when you're a, a New York stage actor who moves to LA and then there are shows that want to consider you for, they usually say, we'll fly you out on Wednesday late. You'll sleep, you'll get up the next morning, you'll read for everybody and then we'll put you on a plane Thursday afternoon and you're back in uh, LA. Great, fantastic. So my agents say, um, so would you, we're, we're wondering if you would be interested in audition for Billy Elliot. We know you told us not to, not to um, bother you with any theater stuff because you just don't want to be tempted with, you know, being away from your family. And I said, well, well, um, well would they fly me out and put me out? Well, no, actually, actually the casting director thinks you're wrong for the role. Oh, wow. And I went, they, well, so why am I going in? And they said, because, well, we've thrown all of our other actors that are possibly right for it, and they weren't interested in any of them that have auditioned already. So we were wondering if you'd be willing to, like, fly yourself out and, um, <laughs> and audition for them. Oh. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, my ego. And I'm going, the casting director thinks I'm wrong. <laughs> and they based that on, well, your character from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is so different than this role um, you know, and Billy Elliot, and I go, yeah, but I'm an actor, but okay. Um, uh, I, okay, I see what we're up against here. I said, they said, and what they want you to do is they want you to come out early and do a preliminary audition with, you know, and I go, you know what? If you can get me past the casting director, then you have to get me past all the other preliminary steps. Get me so that my audition is the callback session with the director who makes the decision. I, I don't want to waste time letting somebody else's opinion get in the way of me being able to have this job. So if you can get me into the final callbacks, I'll go. I'll do it. I'll bone up. I'll book this job. And, and they did. My agents are good enough that they made that happen. In spite of the casting director going, he's not right. He's not right for the role. So I got in. What did I do? I flew in. Oh, I stayed with my brother up in Westchester. But on the day of the audition, I went down and I had my hair was a lot longer. I hadn't shaved. Uh, the other thing was what, what I learned in hindsight was one of the reasons they were just 
dismissing all of these American actors auditioning for the, these roles was because we all used, especially the guys auditioning for the dad, we all used the movie Billy Elliot as our template for how to do this Geordie accent, right? Yeah. And it turns out the Scottish actor who played the dad was a really lazy dialectician that he really wasn't <laughs> doing a good Geordie accent. He was falling back on a Scottish on a regular basis. So we basically, all the Americans who thought he was doing it right because that's the guy who did the role in the movie, we all came in basically doing a Scottish accent. And the creative team at Billy Elliot were pulling their hair out. They're going, no, this isn't, <laughs> no, that's not Jordy, that's Scottish. Well, it's like, well, that's what that guy in the movie did. So um, what they ended up doing with me was they said, you're going to come in and spend, uh, you're, you're going to do a, a a dialect session with our dialect coach he's going to decide first on the same day that morning he's going to decide whether you have the ability to do a geordie accent and then if he says signs off on you then we're going to go ahead and come and do the remaining three hours of auditioning you're going to do that day with the rest of the crew so i went in early at to this casting office uh where these studios were and while i'm sitting there waiting for my meeting with william conacher the dialect coach Stephen Daldry comes in to use one of the two rooms that they're auditioning in, and he knows who I am. <laughs> he knows I'm coming in that day, and I know who he is because one of the most important tools, thanks to the Internet, is you research, you, you look at the breakdown for an audition, and you look at all the people that could potentially be in that room, and you Google every single person, and you look them up, and you find out what they look like, who they are. <laughs> what shows they've done in case there's any thread of connection you may have had with that person. That's another vital yeah. uh, salesman tool that you must have. And the internet is there for you to take all, glean all that information. But I was prepared when I saw him, I said, I, he goes, Greg, I said, Stephen, good to see you. And, and I looked very different. I had really, really long hair. I wasn't shaven. I was wearing my clothes, which is basically flannel and jeans. And he said, I, he said, I really appreciate your coming in for this. I, I realize, you know, it's, um, he, he knew that they weren't paying for it at all. Yeah. Uh, but, but that it was my own ambition. It, long story short, goes, I'm looking forward to this afternoon. Um, uh, thanks again. Uh, uh, we'll see you later. And then he went into his room and then I went and had my session with William Conacher, who, thank God, because I do have a facility actually for, I have a great ear yeah. for dialects and boom, he said, he goes, you're good to go. I went to my favorite barbershop in Times Square, Times Square Barbers at the time. It's not, um, the, um, uh, uh, Nick Sacadato, who was my barber for a million years down in at Hudson and 12th street. Um, but he retired. So I had to go to my, my my B team for haircuts and I went in and they, they cut my hair number four clipper all the way down and and shave gave me a shave and then I changed my clothes to wear the exact same outfit that the dad wears the jeans the work boots and the leather coat that was in the movie because I was going to go I'm going to I know what casting director I know this casting director thinks I'm wrong for one thing yeah I also gained 20 pounds oh, wow. since the role I had played in Dirty Rotten Scoundrel. So physically, I was looking different. And I wanted to get myself as as possibly close to what I think they're looking for based on what we saw in the movie. So then I walk back in the room and you can see on Steven's face, he's going, and William Conacher, they went, I had a whole other look <laughs> when I came in. And I think that was beneficial. I think they went, oh, this 
actor is transformative. He's yeah. capable of not just he's not just him. He can do. And then we had a a, a a beautiful, amazing audition process that was more about me sitting down with Stephen Daldry and the assistant director. Uh, um, uh, Weber, Julian Weber. Um, they spent more time talking to me about me and getting a sense of who I was as a person because what they wanted to make clear was, yeah, you're going to be like the number two build character in the show. Uh, <laughs> Mrs. Wilkinson is billed above the dad. And, and But um, the real, this is a show that has 24 children in it. And the success of the success of this show is going to be that we all understand how important it is to nurture and protect and yield to these children who are vital to the success of the show. And I go, of course, I'm a dad. I get it. Yeah. And they even offered, Stephen even said, if you want, we'll, we can put your kids in the ensemble to play ensemble roles. And I'm thinking, no way in H-E double toothpicks would I do that to my children. Uh, also, also, you know, just knowing the rehearsal process, but yeah. also it's like, I don't, my, I don't want to do that to my wife who'd have to be the stage door mom. And it was like, no, thank you. How generous. He was like, he was suddenly creating opportunities to make the job more enticing for me. Yeah. And it was clear that he was seriously considering me for this role. Ultimately, you know, in spite of what the casting director thought, uh, I got the job. And, you know, a year later, uh, was honored with the Tony Award and yeah. the Drama Desk Award and the uh, Outer Critics Circle Award. And that heat got me a gig on Nurse Jackie. And that heat got Tom Selleck's wife, uh, Jilly, to go, you know, Greg, what just your friend Greg just won a Tony Award. You should get him on your show. And then the next thing you know, Tom's calling and saying, hey, I got this character. It's only a two-episode arc at the end of season one, but I really would like you to do it. And I got that message through my agent. And I said to my agent, I said, oh, this is <laughs> this is job number three that Tom Selleck has given me. That's and awesome. but I they said, but we'd like it. He, they wanted me to come in the next morning and read for the producers. And I said, look, I'm the first guy to do a dog and pony show. If, if I don't know the people who are making the decision, I want to meet them. I need to sell myself to them so they know I'm the guy. Unfortunately, tomorrow, we have a put-in rehearsal for a new Billy. And that Billy shares the stage with me 60% of the time. And it would be unfair for me not to be there for that child because he's going to make his Broadway debut that night. And he deserves to have me there. And that's my first priority. And... I have a cold. So my voice is like shot to begin with. So if I were to come in the room, not only would I be undermining my first obligation, which is to the Broadway show, I would also not sound the best. And I had auditioned for Blue Bloods for three other roles prior to this offer that came from Tom. And I said, if you really need to know, need to know what I look like on tape, you've got me for three other characters. I've done three other auditions with your casting office. They know you guys, they have me on tape. Please review that tape. I'm sorry. If, if you want me to come in the day after tomorrow, I can do it, but I can't do it tomorrow. And I thought, well, you know, yeah. uh, that that's what it is. That's where my, I, I'm obligated to this Broadway show. Well, long story short, end of the next day, you got the job. Nice. And then, and at the end of the second episode that I did uh, we're shooting over at um, 
what's the Italian restaurant where the commissioner and Garrett always meet for drinks after a rough day. Um, Kevin Wade, our executive producer, he's sitting with me at the table. We're not done shooting. He goes, so he says, so are you enjoying this? And I go, yeah, why do I see a lot? Am I seeming down? No, no. He goes, you're great. He goes, we're just hoping that you'd like to keep doing this because we know it's just a two episode arc, but this, this is a really good fit and you could really help us out. And I'm going, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> you bet. Yes. Thank you, Santa Claus. And, and that's how, you know, that wonderful Broadway job, which I'm still in love with Stephen Daltrey to this day, uh, who, by the way, just got, you know, he's got how many Oscar nominations for the hours, for the reader, for, uh, I mean, uh, and, yeah. and, but he also just got another, he just got another Tony nomination and his play, The Inheritance, that he directed and its writer. And it, it's gotten a bazillion nominations nice. for the, they just came out. So, yeah, I've just, you know, I'm lucky. Did yeah. that answer your question? Yes, I don't it know. did. That was, that was, that was oh, definitely. Good. Yeah, and I mean, it's really cool to see you on uh, Blue Bloods. The chemistry that you and uh, Tom have together is just great. I mean, it's like. It's it, it's him. Yeah. It's him because he, he yeah. could be, you know, if he wanted to, although he's always generous because he's really yeah. always about the end result. But gratefully, um, uh, the, the foundation, we had an episode where at the end it was like a bromance, mm -hmm. a little teary when, when Garrett chooses not to leave and that he's hoping for a slightly better raise. It was some brilliant writing oh, by yeah. Kevin Wade. But but it was a very emotional scene and it was so easy to play and Tom and I both admitted to each other we were so looking forward to playing the scene because we both said this is this is actually our real life. Yeah. Uh, we love coming to work and he is the boss and, and I don't make any mistake about it. Uh, it, it, I'm grateful for that, but but how it was a beautifully written scene that genuinely reflected the wonderful relationship that that he and I have. He's an incredibly loyal professional friend. Uh, I, I, I and it and it's ref, you know ten years. What we're yeah. going on season eleven on this on this job, my third that he and I have done together. And I mean, I think that's the thing about Blue Bloods that keeps it going is actually there's a heart to the show that a lot of other shows don't have that are quote-unquote procedural type shows it's yeah it it was and i wasn't a part of the early days of season one but i do know from conversation with tom and and also to see the changes that took place mm -hmm. that they were really pushing for a procedural show early on and and as were the original creative and the right and some of the writers they had on board but tom really knew and understood the weight and value as did um len goldberg that it was the family and the dynamic of those characters. It's yeah. that that's the heart and soul. Not how do you, you know, how do you how do you catch the perp? It's more about yeah. what are the human struggles that take place, and they wisely focused on that. You know, and and I think I in support of what you said, I think that's the the success of the show. Is it really wonderfully character driven? Um, is the uh, show going to tackle any of the current events in the world or anything in the upcoming season, or is it going to? I mean, like, you know, I, yeah. I don't know what I'm allowed to say yet, yeah. except that um, if you actually look at, if you really look at what we're going through right now, yeah. every single topic has already been addressed. Oh, I'm sure. On Blue Bloods. Oh, I know it has. From, <laughs> from pandemic disasters to, uh, to Black Lives Matter to, you yeah. know, 
let's let's defund the cops. All of those things have already been subject matter yeah. that the show has addressed. So um, is there a sense of responsibility in terms of putting more uh, focus on that? Yes. And I, I, I would be lying if I said that wasn't the the priority yeah. of our writers in terms of the arc of this first season is that we realize we have an even greater responsibility uh, right now to help um, heal and educate and inform, mm-hmm. not preach, no, yeah, but, that's the thing. Um, but to um, perhaps by way of example, show um, how constructive debate can exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's no question that um, CBS is concerned of being politically correct uh, as a network. But I do know that our our writers and our cast are willing to um, push back when they think that there are choices that are being asked uh, by the network that may be too safe. Uh, But our show feels it's it's important to be let's be a little uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. that's 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 good drama. That's good education, you know, and and I mean, I think that's what's always been good about the show too is it tackles issues from all points of view a lot of times so you don't have just like this is how you're supposed to believe or you know there's no preaching like you said which is which yeah, is good. It, yeah it it is it it gives if there's two sides to an argument it gives those who are who champion one side or the other feeling like they've been heard and understood but it also gives those people the opportunity to hear and see the other side of the argument mm-hmm. when they may in life have blinders on, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think uh, that that's a great uh, gift that the show has that, that I know is, is not being um, uh, di- disregarded or disrespected. Hey folks, this is uh, Michael E. Cullen the second um, from the podcast that you're listening to right now, along with Matthew Haas. We just wanted to tell you about our great, great podcast Super. called Super. It's called All Too Real. And on that show, what, what do we do, Matt? We, we watch biopics and then we talk about whether or not the movie matched up with the real story or not. So we, we, we a lot we, more exciting than that, though. Yeah. So, 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 so we, we analyze the real story and the real story. Get it? Get it? Real. You know? Yeah, they're spelled differently, folks. Yeah. You can guess which one I said which way. Uh-huh. Anyways, um, so uh, sometimes we have guests, sometimes we don't. Um, but we uh, talk about great, great, uh, great movies like uh, Shattered Glass yes. and The Social Network and uh, a Futile and Stupid Gesture, among others. Um, those are some of the ones that we've covered so far, and uh, we're going to cover a lot more. So uh, please uh, subscribe on. Stitcher, um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you uh, find your great, fun podcasts. And be sure to share it with your friends. Do it. Do it. Do it. And make sure you're not afraid to get all too too real. Bye-bye. Do you have dreams that you want to achieve but are scared to do so due to self-doubt, fear, and other people's criticism? I have just what you need. You need a dose of the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, where I interview guests that will motivate and inspire you to stop at nothing to achieve your dreams. And always remember, if you believe, you can achieve.
do you have uh, any uh, any advice to anybody that might be interested in getting into entertainment or anything? Yeah. Um, what there? There's a paragraph that I have that I've you know because that that question is often being asked. Yeah. And and I I, I was invited after being honored with a Tony Award, I was invited to be a distinguished alumnus at my high school and speak at the commencement ceremony. And the crux of what I said was, and I think it's whether it's being an actor or or anything, is that um, the greatest service you could do to yourself as a human being and to all the people who have touched your life to wherever you are at this point in life um, you know, your, your mother who gave birth to you, the, the teachers who, who educated and nurtured you, the, the whoever, the, anybody that did anything to help keep you going forward in life. The, the, the greatest um, honor you could do to yourself and all of them is invest the time to figure out what it is that makes you want to wake up in the morning. What's the thing that most makes that most compels you as something you really, really, really want to do that really makes you happy? Um, there, it isn't necessarily because not a, you know, a lot of people love to have a career in, in entertainment and they pursue it and they're just you know dashed at every turn and they're miserable and so they're not happy. So, uh, it's hard work to figure out. What is it that really makes you happy and allow whatever that, cause that's a long journey. Yeah. So some people never find that, but, um, if, if, uh, you find that pursuing a, a career in happiness, a, a career in entertainment actually gives you happiness and validation and a, a sense of worth and a sense of accomplishment. And that's the, that's the thing that makes you want to get up in the morning. Then I say, that's what you do. But, be honest with yourself. That's a hard thing to do too. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people that still are, uh, and I'll, I'll admit this, this pandemic has, um, has filtered out a lot of people there, you know, they were just kind of living on hopes and dreams Yeah. because there's simply no opportunity right now. Mm -hmm. And their waiter jobs that they had, that they were doing, waiting for their big break. Those have been dashed. So it's a very difficult yeah. time right now. Um, because the restaurants are gone. Um, so um, I, I say go after it. You know, if it's something you, but, but don't, you know, don't um, just always be honest with yourself. Always look in the mirror and, and always be, be truthful in comparing yourself to your abilities to other people. You know what I mean? Um, there's so many people who, I mean, as brutal as it sounds, they, you just go, I don't, I, I think it's wonderful that they want to be an actor, but when you see the work they do and the limited um, skill set they have, you you go, either you need to start over and get some really good training, yeah. or you need somebody that's going to say, this isn't this isn't the best path for you. Yeah. But I guess the other thing for somebody who really wants to be an actor is go after it. You know, don't don't sit back and go, oh, one day something's going to happen. You yeah. have to pursue it with all your being. I mean, really, it's got to be the thing that you want to do 24-7 all day, every day, not just hope it happens. You have to go after it. Yeah. And then if it doesn't come to fruition, then maybe that's uh, that's life helping you um, make a new decision. Yeah, nobody's being discovered at a drugstore counter anymore or anything like that. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it does. It it does happen on occasion. But not. But that you know, yeah. no. Weinstein's going to prison now, so yeah. that one variable is is yeah. gone. So, um, anything else you wanted to talk about before uh, we uh, before I let you go here? I don't want to keep you all night or anything. No, yeah. I, I'm just I'm grateful for this opportunity and for yeah. the chance to break in my new sound studio here yeah. in in the guest bedroom in in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, thank you. It was uh, great talking to you, and maybe we can do it again sometime. And uh, I can't wait to see the new uh, season of Blue Bloods and anything else you got coming up. Yeah, thanks so much. I, I, I'm grateful for your enthusiasm for the show. And maybe, because yeah. you are so successful with the Zoom, maybe we can do something with, uh, I, I could definitely hook in Abby and Bob, I'm sure, okay. if at some point we could do, what after the show's up and running. Yeah, okay. Maybe but- we could... We we could do like a you know let's talk about the episode kind that, of thing. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Because uh, yeah yeah the season premieres is chock full of really good stuff. Awesome. Actually, the first two episodes are really good. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have a problem with some of the stuff they got Garrett doing, but it's good drama. That's all. <laughs> you know, I I realize I have to go, Greg. It's not you. You're not. This isn't you. This is Garrett. I go. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, that's good yeah, to hear. Thank, thank you, Michael. On, yeah, on. great to talk to you and see you yeah. finally because you've yeah. been so good with your, you know, your internet follow-up and you know, yeah. emails and things. So, okay. thank you, and uh, you thank, have a good evening thank, and thank uh, you. enjoy the rest of the night. <laughs> Thanks so much. You thank too. you. Okay, that was my interview there with Gregory Jabara. Um, that was pretty insightful. Really great interview. Um, such a nice guy. Um, such a down-to-earth. Um, I don't know. It's just really cool when people that you admire on TV are like good people, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, cause it kind of sucks when you find out the opposite, like, Oh shoot. It's like, yeah, which, you know, ho- <laughs> hopefully doesn't happen too much. And I do like the fact that he, he talks about how, uh, how great the set is and everything too, you know, working with uh, Tom Selleck and everything, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how much he owes to Tom in his career, and that was really cool to hear. Um, I, I mean, Tom Selleck is definitely one of America's greatest actors, in my opinion. So that's cool. Yeah, he's he's really good. Um, plus, too, you know, like you know the, <clears throat> the you know acting and well, pretty much any kind of you know artistic endeavor. It's really you know a really tough industry. So you know, you know. If, you can get a, a gig that lasts 10 years, you know, that's, that's, you know, really good. Yeah, I mean, that is. And, uh, mm-hmm. and this is the third job that, uh, Tom has gotten him too. So it's pretty oh, wow. cool. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I mean, talking about good actors too. I mean, Gregory, a Tony award winning actor, just brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant on, uh, on blue bloods brings a lot of heart to that character and the chemistry between him and Tom Selleck and the other characters that he interacts with is just so real <clears> and cool. Um, so yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed hearing about that and how things have changed on their set since COVID-19 hit and everything too. So that was pretty cool to hear and hopefully we'll have him on again sometime soon. Yeah. And, uh, so anyways, what's going on with you, Matt? Anything? Not much. I'm just, uh, you know, still working on my projects. I've, you know, kind of working on my, uh, fourth (coughs) volume of my music compilations where I kind of just going through <clears throat> pretty much all of my work really since like 
2001, maybe 2000. And I'm just kind of pouring through over all of it and um, just kind of picking out, you know, what I think are, you know, my best songs or tracks and making these compilations. And, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of work, really, because, uh, you know, because not only am I trying to find, you know, what I think are my best tracks, but I'm trying to put them in an order where it's it's pleasing to listen to in that particular order because I I like making music mixes. I don't like just throwing a bunch of tracks in, in a random order. I kind of like to yeah. take the listener on a journey, so to speak. And it's 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 tough though um, to do that because you really gotta you gotta find the right tracks and you gotta you gotta make sure that each track goes into the next track in a good way. And it's it's just um so I'm 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 working on my fourth one right now and um you know i'll be doing other stuff too i've been watching a lot of tv you know which is really hard work and um oh yeah i know you know <clears throat> just been... finished the boys watching the boys last week and i'm re-watching it again um this week so it's a good show <coughs> good show i've been it's re- a really good show i've been re-watching the former nbc television show chuck for some reason yeah and uh that's a good show too yeah i'm about halfway through <clears throat> halfway through the series now, which is good. Um, yeah, finished up uh, yeah. watching um, most of uh, Once Upon a Time recently. That was a good great show. show. Yes. Speaking of the boys, uh, um, one of the one of the actors in the boys was also in Once Upon a Time season one. Um, I forgot his name, even though he's like a seriously famous actor. Um, <clears throat> who was? Hmm. Huh. Which actor? Uh, the guy who plays um, uh, Edgar, Mr. Edgar and the boys. Oh, yeah. He's been in like a million Duh, I forgot all about that. Uh, Giancarlo, yeah, he was, Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was Yeah, he was season one of the of the once in a time he played. Um, yeah. What did he play? He played like. Uh, he played the mirror, the, uh, the, the guy in the mirror, Sydney, the man in the mirror. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. Most people call him Giancarlo Esposito. But I, yeah. I heard an interview with him recently, and he says his name is Giancarlo Esposito. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's been in everything. I mean, he's been, he was in Malcolm X. He played one of Malcolm X's killers. Oh, yeah. Um, he was in, uh, I, don't, I don't think he had a speaking role in that movie, but just, he just, his body language in that movie, though. He's, he wasn't oh, yeah. only he's... in, like, scenes in that movie, but, like, the one scene is him just kind of cleaning a gun with a bunch of other guys getting ready to you know assassinate yeah. Malcolm X well, and was, then the other scene he was in a lot of Spike Lee movies he was in Do the Right Thing and uh, yeah yeah that's yeah. right um yeah. so um yeah anyway I kind of got off topic but, but yeah but anyways, <laughs> but, uh, but, anyways he's, a good, yeah. he's a good actor um if you're listening <laughs> to this by any chance uh if you want to be on our show and be interviewed uh, I'd love to interview you um you're you know an awesome actor um and speaking of awesome actors, uh, I'd like to just you know thank Gregory again for being on the show. That was really cool. So yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, but yeah. As far as as far as life goes for me, it's just pretty much work and uh, watching Chuck. So um, <laughs> and uh, doing the podcast and uh, yeah, doing some writing here and there for stuff. So hopefully that uh, keeps people a little bit informed of what life is like during COVID for Matt and Mike. <laughs> and, you know, we'll 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 keep you updated on that, folks. Yeah. And uh I don't know. Um anything else before we go here, Matt? 
Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, have a good evening. Make sure you uh, subscribe, share, rate the show. Um, check out the links in our show notes uh, for things like our Patreon and our merchandise that we have at Tee Public, and uh, some places where you can help podcast, people during COVID. A color um, Park production. You know. Because if you have a little bit of extra Michael money and II, can help people out that don't have money right Matthew now because of Subscribe and the way share everything the show. is shit Visit here, um, <laughs> um, do it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be good. You know? Anyways, um, bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>